0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Moan
2: Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me, Martinez. You can't run for Congress unless you file. And you can't do that until there are finalized congressional district maps. And that can't happen until the state gets population data from the most recent census count. About that count, it's running way behind, way behind. The pandemic isn't helping with that. Coming up, we'll hear how candidates are handling the campaign holding pattern. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. Me Martinez, thanks for getting the weekend started with us. Coming up. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to Dodger Stadium. It is opening day, folks. Opening day here at Dodger Stadium. Thank you all for joining us. That's right. You heard uh, Austin talk with Libby there from uh, Dodger Stadium. It is the home opener for the Dodgers, and Austin is correct. It is scoreless, top of the fourth, Nationals and Dodgers. We're going to uh, hear from some of the fans that Libby has spoken to uh, from uh, from the ravine there at Dodger Stadium. So that's coming up uh, just ahead. First, though, we've got State Affairs. That's our weekly dive into the California political pool. That census count. Is running a little behind actually it's way behind schedule but the pandemic has a lot to do with that plus we all know california is really a year-round fire season here but now the approach on how to battle blazes He's getting a big cash infusion and a reimagined game plan. This week on State of Affairs, we're joined by Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED and co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown. And also with us, Zach Corser, director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. So yesterday, Governor Newsom and legislators uh, unveiled a wildfire prevention proposal with a price tag of just over half a billion bucks. Marisa, what's the itemized receipt sound like?
4: Well, you know, a million here, a million there, and you're talking <laughs> yeah. real money. Um, yeah, so this is 536 million, more than half of the one billion dollar that Newsom called for in his January budget. Um, the biggest chunk of it, 350 million, which is double what he initially proposed, is for fire prevention and suppression. You know, things like prescribed fires, reducing vegetation, um, things that experts say is really what we need. Um, But they're also putting in about $25 million for fortifying older homes that didn't have that fire resistance uh, construction um, and and kind of a series of other programs. This is mostly general fund money uh, with about $125 million coming from the cap and trade fund, that greenhouse gas reduction fund.
2: Yeah, it is a lot of money. Uh, We're going to be talking to California's Natural Resources Secretary, Wade Crowfoot, uh, about some of this in just a few minutes. But uh, a couple of things jumped out at me. Uh, First, the proposal doubles the the money Newsom had originally planned to spend. But potentially more important, Zach, is a provision that money be spent for, quote, projects that protect a larger population base. Zach, what does that mean?
1: Well, I I think it's a recognition that California has regional needs for fire prevention. And this seems to prioritize projects that are, you know, have a, a, a larger effect on built environments. And it's also important to recognize that the causes of fires vary somewhat between northern and southern California. You know, we have to worry more about underbrush and growth in northern California, more about winds here. And it's also just important to recognize that this could favor generally southern California because we have so much more uh, population. We're hotter and growing hotter. Um, And this may actually end up benefiting us sort of per capita and bringing more resources to southern California.
2: Yeah, it's, it's good to have a customized approach, right? You just can't throw money at the situation the same because, as you said, right, northern and southern California are two very different places.
1: Yeah, you have to recognize that it's a big state uh, and that, you know, geography is important to this too. You know, how much rainfall you get, uh, the fact that, you know, a lot of forests uh, exist in Northern California. We have fewer forests here, but we have just different approaches and different needs.
2: Now, Newsom made this announcement at the site of the Creek Fire that burned on nearly 400,000 acres last September. Uh, Just for a little refresher on how just Terrible 2020 was. Almost 4 million acres were scorched last year with five of the six biggest fires in state history happening in 2020. Um, Marisa, on this, because I, I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of experts on how to best prevent losses from wildfires, and they all say stop building stuff where fires are likely to happen. I, I mean, are, is, are these just words in the wind now at this point? Is no one going to listen to that? <laughs>
4: I mean it's hard right I think there's a couple things here one is we also have a housing crisis right we don't have enough homes and we have a huge homeless issue and so I think that you know there's obviously a real interest at both the local and state level to get more construction built Um, to your point though I mean what I've seen in my experience reporting that the biggest problem is 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 not just that you know we're building homes in these areas but we're not necessarily preparing those communities for the inevitable which is that we we live in a wildfire state, right? And so I think that Newsom's been reticent to kind of step on local control. It's kind of a no-win issue for state officials. Um, you know, we saw an LA judge step in and 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 kind of smack down a developer of 19,000 homes uh, up there, bordering Kern County, Tehachapi uh, area. And I think that um, you know the question becomes not if we build some of these developments, because I think that the market will basically determine that. But I think how we build them is really important. If you look back in time, a lot of the fires that have happened back 20 years even could be predicted by experts. And so we really need to think about mitigation and ways to harden homes and to prepare these forests. Because the political reality is that nobody's going to say, no, 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 we don't need more homes in California.
2: You know, Zach, Gavin Newsom has always said that he will not tell anyone where they can or can't live in California. But when it comes to affordable housing, as Marisa mentioned, and Wildfire damages, uh, losses totaling in the billions, is is he at a bit of a Sophie's Choice kind of thing? Look, it's
1: tough. Uh, there's 25 million in this package for making older hom- homes more resilient against fire damage, but I think more really needs to be done to think about discouraging, um, you know, high risk behavior in terms of homes that already exist in fire prone areas or new developments in these areas. You know, California has a a fair plan fire insurance that's kind of an insurer of last resort. You know, some could see this as encouraging people to remain in areas that they really ought not to be in. And when we think about the billion dollar price tag, I think it's going to be a lot higher. I mean, we need to find a sustained source of funding over the years because it's going to cost us a ton of money to make California ready for the the wildfires that are coming.
2: Marisa, do you think that Newsom says that he won't tell someone where to live because he thinks he can't. I mean, an L.A. Superior uh, Court judge just halted a 20-year-long project to build 19,000 homes uh, bordering Kern County because of fire risk. So this is someone who says, look, no, you can't do it. It'll probably still happen down the road, but at least it's someone in a position of power saying, hey, you need to rethink this a bit.
4: Yeah, I mean, I do think that some of this is going to come down to a combination of how both the state responds. Like what, you know, you may not be in a position where the legislature and governor want to say don't do this, but they may put your restrictions or requirements around it that makes it more difficult or just safer. Um, I mean, I think the other fascinating thing I'm going to be watching for a is like, what happens with all this office space in more urban cities, like San Francisco and LA that, you know, is really being uh, not being used right now. Is that something we can repurpose for housing? Is that even possible? I mean, I think we need to both think creatively about wildfire mitigation and management and about housing. And obviously, they need to be taken in concert together, um, which historically we haven't done. But I do think at least there's a bipartisan desire to do this because of the fact that all Californians are impacted by these fires, regardless of where you live.
2: And it's funny you mentioned that, Marisa, because it was, uh, I think, last month. That I spoke to L.A. County Supervisor Catherine Barger, who has a plan that she's, uh, she's working on where all of this business space, these, these areas or buildings that are, that are in business-zoned areas, she's looking to try and convert that to affordable places to live, or actually places where unhoused folks can live. I, I don't know if it's necessarily uh, temporary, short-term, or permanent, but at least that conversation, Marisa, seems to be happening because, yeah, you're right, this, this pandemic has maybe changed the way we work and where we work and how we live.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a exciting and sort of terrifying time right now. <laughs> yeah, We're talking
2: to Marisa Lagos, political correspondent, KQED, co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown. Also with us, Zach Corser, director, policy lab at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, one more thing on that, uh, Zach, uh, really quick. I mean, when, when it comes to, and uh, you're at uh, Claremont McKenna College, when it comes to the space required for schools, I know that kids uh, in uh, all over the place are like heading back into the classroom, but is there any sense of it being maybe thought of the way maybe workplaces are being thought of, especially on the college level, that maybe college kids don't have to be in a class?
1: You know, I, I would say no, actually. I think education, at least in my experience here, and as I've talked to colleagues across the country, you know, we've done our level best to try to adapt to the, the situation of COVID. But, you know, we the Claremont McKenna is a residential college, and a lot of what we do is, is you know, personal interactions, meeting with groups, being together, uh, in the classroom. And it does create stronger connections. I think it helps in terms of creating an atmosphere that's conducive to learning. And I, I think we do know that, you know, all things being equal, we'd rather be here in person. And, and we, I think we have plans to do that in the fall. And, and frankly, I'm looking forward to being back in the classroom.
2: All right. So now, a quick check of the California COVID scoreboard. More than seven and a half million Californians fully vaccinated. And Gavin Newsom wants to reopen the economy by June 15th. So how to interlock these two things and, and do it safely? Because uh, we're wondering, you know, full movie theaters, concerts, restaurants, stadiums, workplaces, all that has to be done, but done safely. In, in my best Shakespeare, therein lies the rub. Marisa, <laughs> is uh, California throwing out mixed messages about how this is going to be or not to be, I guess, yeah, I guess I, I got Hamlet on the mind. <laughs> Go ahead.
4: So I would say they're not, I, I don't know if it's mixed messages. I think it's it's as most things with this pandemic sort of evolving conversations, right? So we know that the White House has made clear that they don't want a federal vaccine passport. Um, and that there won't be a federal mandate to get vaccinated. And our uh, head of health and human services in California recently said that we're not developing one in California that will be government run. But they are you know, talking about things like requiring either a negative COVID test or a vaccine to go to say big events, 5,000 plus. We know that you know, in San Francisco, the giants are requiring that. That's pretty different than a vaccine passport A because it means you could just get a COVID test, right? Yeah. Um, so I do think that this is going to be an evolving conversation. Um, Different countries are doing it differently, different states. New York is developing its own pass. I think a lot of the partisanness of this conversation where, you know, Republicans in Texas and and Florida are saying even private businesses shouldn't be requiring vaccinations is a little bit confusing to me, given our entire like my entire life. You've you're, I literally just filled it out for my kids today. You have to be vaccinated yeah. to go to public schools. So it's not I don't know. It just feels like like everything with COVID. It's like getting trapped in this weird partisan Place when really this should be something based on science and and best practices.
2: Zach, when it comes to requiring vaccines for people to be able to work,
1: how much water does that hold, or or could it hold? Well, it's a legal question, so I'll give you a lawyerly answer. Generally, yes. I mean, it's you know there's a lot to be worked out here, but the general guidelines are that federal law mandates that. Uh, you know, if if it, you can allow mandates, if your job requires it in some way, if it's justified by a direct threat. So, if you're working at a grocery store, retail, I think it's pretty obvious the connection. But maybe a future controversy is if you work in an office job where you can work at home, like you have during COVID, can your employee employer require you to get that vaccine? It's it's unclear. And I think early on in the pandemic, there was this notion that uh, you know the fact that the vaccines are emergency use and they don't have a full. Um, approval by the FDA somehow is an obstacle to this requirement. But really, private employers under current law probably will be able to require this. But public sector, it's less certain. Um, LAUSD here locally, there's some employees that are suing uh, because mm. the district is requiring vaccination. So we're just going to have to find out what the courts have to say about those situations.
2: All right. So uh, we're all waiting for the results of the U.S. census. It's uh, taken a little bit longer than it would have because of the pandemic. But, Zach, uh, who in particular is really, really starting to sweat the slowness of the census?
1: Oh, wow. Well, if you're any kind of elections official or a future candidate for legislative office, uh, you don't know what districts are going to be or how the maps are going to draw on right now. Usually we have this information by now, you know, by December to April. This is when the census, uh, U.S. Census Bureau sends us this information. But due to COVID, it's very delayed. They think that probably won't get here till September. So as a consequence, states like California that have a relatively early primary, June 7th, It seems an even earlier deadline for candidate filings in December. I mean, it really doesn't look, if you ask experts right now, like we're going to meet those deadlines. So I think the legislature at some point is going to have to react, um, particularly because California, we're going to lose a seat this year, it looks like. Uh, It's by estimates now, but I think it's pretty clear, you know, uh, maps are going to shift quite a lot. And so this is going to mean a lot in terms of, you know, where to run and how to run. So,
2: Maurice, Okay. So, you know, if if what Zach says happens, you know, we we'll lose one of fifty-three seats. What's the big deal? Is it the end of the world?
4: Uh, no, nothing's the end of the world, as we've learned this year. Eh? But I mean, it's not You're great. Right. It's not, I should have it's,
2: rephrased that question. You're absolutely it's, right.
4: It's not great for two reasons. I mean, one is just as a Californian partisan politics aside, I know that's hard for people to wrap their heads around. But, you know, w- this is our representation in Congress. And we share the same number of senators as every other state, let's not forget, including Wyoming, with its population of 580,000 people. So um, yeah, less representatives isn't fabulous. From a partisan lens, uh, there's some concern among Democrats that this could this extra seat, so to speak, could end up going to a place like Texas or Florida, um, which might favor a Republican. Um, On the other hand, we're seeing states like Arizona, which just slipped blue, picking up seats. So it's a little hard to make a political guess definitively as to how this is all going to work out. But we do know that, you know, in a lot of those states, including Texas and Florida, Republicans are in charge of the legislature, which thereby is in charge of drawing the districts so they could get an advantage regardless of what the population data looks like, which gets back to my first point about representation Mm -hmm. and how it's not always really equal in the United States.
2: You're you're right about that. Uh, Zach, so what's uh, California to do about it? What what are other states maybe planning on doing if if the census data doesn't come in in a timely fashion?
1: Well, there's been a variety of different approaches that states have taken. I mean, New Jersey, for example, they even put a uh, voter-approved constitutional amendment on their ballot to say that they could use their 2010 maps. So for this next go-round, they're actually going to use the old maps, and so the new population won't be represented. Uh, There's other states that are kind of frustrated and are just suing the U.S. Census Bureau to get this data. Some are using estimates, which aren't really accurate. Some are delaying postponing primaries, you know, and it seems, I think, increasingly likely but the legislature is going to have to make some decisions about what to do. Maybe it's going to be a delay. We'll just have to wait and see what they do.
2: That's Zach Corser, director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Also with us, Marisa Lagos, political correspondent at KQED, and co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown, Marisa, Zach. Marisa and Zach, you know, I just got my uh, my second shot two weeks ago. So Ooh, hey. today I'm clear. I'm clear to go and do anything I want, anywhere I want to.
4: I'll come lick hey, your come face then, okay?
2: Yeah, I'll bring you guys something. You know. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. You too. We were talking earlier about all that money that California is going to be spending now on preventing wildfires. We're going to talk to uh, Wade Crowfoot, the California Natural Resources Secretary, about how all that money is going to be spent. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
5: Never rains in Southern
2: California. Seems I'm Back now with more take two on 89.3 KpCC and streaming on the KpCC app I'm e. Martinez. We just discussed uh, Governor Newsom's proposal to prevent wildfires with political commentators, Marisa Lagos and Zach Corser. Now we have more details straight from the governor's administration. Here to tell us all about it is Wade Crowfoot, California's Secretary of Natural Resources. Welcome back to the show.
5: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Now, there's a lot to this plan, but uh, how is this one different from fire prevention plans in years past?
5: Well, California has done a really good job strengthening the response to wildfires. So we all know Cal Fire and they do a remarkable job once wildfires start uh, protecting communities from wildfire. I would say we have the most sophisticated system to respond to wildfires in the U.S., if not the world. Historically, though, we haven't done enough upfront proactive before these big catastrophic wildfires take place in order to protect communities. So what the governor and legislative leaders announced uh, yesterday was really a five to tenfold increase in funding for these upfront measures.
2: So it took money, is, is what you're saying, Secretary, it took money to be able to to make this different than before.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Because what we're talking about is more investment uh, within communities on programs like defensible space around people's homes, helping people harden their homes from these ember driven fires. Uh, uh hard, you know, hardened infrastructure in communities. And then around communities, build these fuel breaks that slow down the fire and give our firefighters a chance to save our homes and get people out. And then across our landscapes, um, do things like in different parts of the state, uh, prescribed burning um, to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires. And you're right, those all take funding. And so The legislature and the governor have stepped up to uh, establish a historic amount of funding for these upfront actions.
2: So, Secretary, forgive me if I'm oversimplifying this a bit, but if if it took or all it took was money to be able to do this stuff, why didn't we do this before? I mean, even before the pandemic, I remember we had a rainy day fund in California that we were just sitting on.
5: Well, first of all, let me say we we have been doing this to date, um, but just not at this scale. I mean, we're talking about the governor proposed in January, a billion dollars to address this threat. Uh, And what they agreed to announce yesterday was that we're gonna spend 500 million immediately. That's um, more than 10 times what the federal government spends in our state despite managing 57% of the forests. So I think the news here is scaling up significantly the investment. Um, given the, the scale of the problems we face. As you know, it's the second dry winter in a row. The entire Southwest is feeling the effects of drought conditions. We're gonna to have tough wildfire conditions uh, this coming year. And the recognition was we need to take sort of a quantum leap uh, in our, our funding and in our efforts if we're gonna actually get ahead of this challenge.
2: Talking to Wade Crowfoot, California Secretary of Natural Resources. Uh, what does this mean right off the bat for Southern California? I mean, so, what's the plan for our region versus, say, Northern California?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. So, this whole approach recognizes that there is not a one size fits all for wildfire resilience in California. Uh, your challenges, for example, in Greater Los Angeles, are very different than forested places like, you know, Paradise, California. So our focus is getting money into the regions and then spending on those regional priorities that counties, that cities, uh, that that CAL FIRE districts are developing together. So in Southern California, that's going to mean more funding for these resilience measures in communities like that defensible space in the wildland urban interface, like that home hardening and community planning, probably fuel breaks um, around many communities. Um, This sort of forest management that we talk about other places in the state won't be a priority because that's not what your landscapes are in Southern California.
2: So, Secretary, this customization, seemingly, of of different approaches depending on the region. um, Again, I go back to why didn't we do this before? Why haven't we done this before?
5: Well, we're learning a lot more about just how catastrophic this challenge is. I mean, we're seeing record-breaking temperatures Uh, across our state in both the winter and the summer. And I don't have to tell you that. I mean, it was 121 degrees in Woodland Hills last summer, 130 degrees uh, in Death Valley, which broke a world record. So fire is worse or more threatening than ever. Uh, And as it's become more threatening, we've understood more and more uh, how these threats, you know, how, how intense these threats are. And in Southern California, that's meant a lot more of these ember driven fires uh, where the uh, where the fires uh, sort of jump the line and actually travel ahead through embers. And that, for example, means spending more money hardening homes uh, in Southern California. So I would just say our understanding is evolving as the threat has worsened.
2: Now, in total, the proposal, at least this proposal, will use uh, about half a billion dollars from the state's general fund. The governor, though, wants to devote a billion to fighting fires. Uh, What are the plans with the other half of the money, the the, the one that uh, he he hasn't gotten to yet?
5: So, you know, every January, our our governor proposes a budget and then the legislature considers it over about six months, months and then they pass a budget in June. So the governor proposed that the billion dollars be approved in June. The legislature went one step further and the governor had some funding. We had some funding for early action to spend immediately before June. And our legislative leaders said, hey, we can spend more of this now to get a head start on this fire season. So the decision uh, yesterday announced was to to spend half of that billion dollars, like, you know, as soon as next, begin spending as soon as next week. Um, Just understanding how urgent the situation is as we head into another tough fire season.
2: Secretary, in our next segment, uh, we're going to talk about a planned community in Tahone Ranch that a judge halted this week because of concerns over fire risks. I, I bring this up to you, Secretary, because I've asked the governor a couple of years back if the state should reconsider redistricting where people live in california and i've talked to expert after expert who always says that the simplest solution the best solution is to simply not build where fires happen over and over again and governor newsom was pretty adamant at the time that he was not interested in that that he would not tell people where they could live in california but what do you think i mean should the governor and the state reconsider this
5: well, I would say, first of all, let's recognize the reality that a quarter of our state's residents already live in high hazard zones uh, that are subject to wildfires. And that's a lot of suburban and, at times, urban Los Angeles. So when somebody says, well, people shouldn't live near wildfire, I just don't think it's realistic. That being said, though, as we need to build more housing, we have to be smart about it, and we we do have to avoid building in very dangerous places where we're setting up future residents uh, to have their lives at peril at the state. We're updating certain fire safety rules that will identify where locals simply shouldn't build. And that's important. Lastly, I would say, you know, ultimately there's a lot of uh, land use decisions that are made at the community level in California. And that's what makes, you know, our communities what they are. So it's a balanced approach, but I'll be honest—we we do have to, you know, keep folks from from building in the most dangerous places. Certainly.
2: That's Wade Crowfoot, California's Secretary of Natural Resources. Secretary, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care.
0: This room, it's gonna
5: take us back.
2: As we just discussed, back at the end of 2018, the County Board of Supervisors voted to approve the centennial development on a portion of the Tohono Ranch. That's at the very tip, uh, north tip of Los Angeles County. Now, this project would add about 20,000 new homes to a place that has been wide open grasslands for centuries. But this week a judge threw a big wrench in the housing plan citing the fire danger as part of the reason to halt the project here to tell us more about it is kpcc infrastructure correspondent sharon mcnary sharon so what did the judge say when he ordered a halt to this project and why did he do it
6: los angeles county superior court judge mitchell beckloff rejected the county's approval of the developers environmental impact report and he cited two areas the fire danger And an argument about climate change. The judge said the developer had not shown that the project would not significantly increase the risk of wildfire in this high fire risk area. Now, sorry, that's a double negative. So what are we really talking about? More people, more fires. Most fires in California are caused by people, be it failing electrical lines, auto exhaust sparks, careless smoking, weed whackers hitting rocks, and and so on. In this area between 1964 and 2015, 31 wildfires larger than 100 acres occurred within five miles of this site, including four within the project's proposed boundaries. So again, more people, more fires. And on the climate change front, the argument was that adding 57,000 people driving something like 75,000 new commuter trips a day would necessarily add to the state's greenhouse gases. So this decision isn't a final end of the project, um, it does mean that the developer has to go back to the L.A. County Board of Supervisors and rewind their approval on the issues of climate change and on fire danger.
2: Now, Sharon, you and I have discussed the, the risk of building uh, here a few years ago. So this ruling comes really as no surprise. But remind us of some of the specific issues that were raised with this development a few years back.
6: Uh, environmentalists raised more than 20 different issues in the appeal that followed the approval of the project. It's just that the fire risk and climate change were the ones that the judge agreed with and uh, made him call at least a temporary halt to this project. Back then, plaintiffs challenged, challenging the project uh, were the Center for Biological Diversity, Climate Resolve, California Native Plant Society. They argued that the approval would put a sprawling new development of 57,000 people in an area slightly larger than the footprint of Griffith Park in the middle. Middle of California's most important remaining native grasslands and these spectacular wildflower fields, they also complained that developers would saddle taxpayers with the expense of building an 830 million six-lane freeway. The freeway would block the migration paths of endangered mountain lions, and on and on.
2: Now, so what was the development group's response then, and what does the group say now?
6: Well, back when they won approval, the developers argued that the economic development the new community represented would produce more than 20,000 jobs and a large amount of affordable housing to help relieve uh, Southern California's local housing crisis. Now, after the ruling, I took a look at the Tahone Ranch webpage and their headline about this ruling is kind of surprising. It says, finish line in sight for efforts to build nearly 20,000 homes in LA County. And they describe their task this way. Some additional analysis required on a small number of issues. Okay. (laughs) So the company says it needs to make some technical changes in greenhouse gases analyses. And it says the judge already agreed that the community would be fire resilient. That said, I think it's going to be difficult for the developer to prove that they can reduce the fire danger or climate change impacts on this project enough to get approval from the county. And that's because back in 2018, when it was first approved, only county supervisor Sheila Kuehl voted against it. She cited the fire danger. And that was at a time when the embers of the massive Woolsey fire in Malibu were, were still smoldering. Uh, the composition of the board has changed since then. The current members are the ones who passed a county sustainability plan, one that looks to reduce fire danger and to be more mindful of the environmental effects of where housing is approved. So the bar may have gotten a little higher for a project like this.
2: All right. So what's the expectation that this project will get back on track, and how might that happen?
6: Here's the hurdle that needs to be cleared for this project to win approval at this point. The California Environmental Quality Act prohibits the Board of Supervisors from approving projects that have significant environmental effects, unless the benefits of the project outweigh its environmental and public health costs. So the benefits have to outweigh those potential harms. They're going to have to do some fancy footwork to show there's not a significantly increased fire risk, adding 57,000 people to this area on the very outskirts of LA, and that those people won't be adding a big chunk of greenhouse gases with their cars and warehouses and and so on.
2: Yeah, Sharon, this this whole development is part of that greater question about where we should allow people to build, given the risk of drought and wildfire. And you just heard me ask on Secretary Kerry foot about this um as as well but i I gotta wonder i mean could this ruling by the judge be a shift in thinking that maybe just maybe we should put limits on that and not let people put up a house kind of wherever they want
6: I do think that the thinking has changed and is changing, and that's partly because of the many disastrous fires we've had and the expense of resolving the aftereffects of those, the various postmortems from governments, utilities, and others about what really we should be doing with these large open spaces, given the fire danger and the more urgent concerns over climate change.
2: All right, that's KPCC's infrastructure reporter, Sharon McNary. Sharon, thanks a lot.
6: You bet. I
4: guess my window Bring back sweet memories. Yeah, Do you remember? How sweet it used to be.
2: Alright, you may have noticed LA's businesses are starting to get back in business almost in a full way. We're gonna check in on one in Leimert Park that's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: All the leaves are brown And the sky is gray
5: for a on a winter's day,
0: I'd be saving more if I was in LA.
2: Yeah. Back now with more take two on eighty nine point three KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm e. Martinez. L.A. is starting to reopen after a year of coronavirus-related shutdowns. Now, to mark the anniversary, we're checking in with small business owners around the county to hear how they've weathered the pandemic. Today, we visit Lamert Park in South L.A., one of the few majority black neighborhoods in the county. KPCC's Caroline Champlin has a story.
3: Lamert Park, the park, has been fenced off for a few years now. But just north on Dagnan Boulevard, you'll find black-owned cafes, restaurants, health stores, clothing stores. They are thriving. The weekend is the time to be here. There's vendors, food trucks, drum circles. A little ways down Dagnan Boulevard is a Jamaican restaurant called Aki Bamboo. And
0: then we paired with the plantain, the rice and beans, the cabbage, and the festival.
3: Marlene Beckford started the business 16 years ago. She shows me around the kitchen, lifting up lids of chafing dishes full of steaming jerk chicken, curried goat, oxtails. Uh,
0: This is what they call the color loop. So this is like colored greens, but uh, a little milder.
3: Beckford says the beginning of the pandemic was scary. Her landlord posted a notice saying the whole building would be shut down.
0: And I thought to myself, well, what are we going to do? I have a mortgage. I have staff that relies on us. I decided, no, we're not going to do that.
3: After checking the county's health guidelines, Beckford pushed back, and the landlord allowed her to stay open for takeout and delivery. It was going well initially, and then Beckford says she was blessed with more business after the Black Lives Matter protests and Juneteenth celebration brought thousands of people to Lamert Park last summer.
0: And then we got a tweet out from uh, Beyonce. And that was another blessing.
3: Beckford has been able to keep her staff on throughout the last year.
0: Can you make a quick Aki and for me, please?
3: She's optimistic about the future of her restaurant and the more recent additions to the Lemert Park community. Yeah, you're welcome to come in, yeah. While Aki bamboo is a longtime local business, a few doors down is a newbie, a clothing store called Soul Folks. It opened during the pandemic last June. It sells clothes made by black designers. Ferris Mason chooses which brands to sell. Well, i just feel like it's my divine purpose to be
0: of service to my community like black people you know um, that's what i'm here for
3: when it opened soul folks was selling about six brands now it's up to 40. mason says the business has done well as have the designers some are making up to four thousand dollars a month i think actually in a way the pandemic has helped put a highlight on the community on this neighborhood Mason says she and some of the designers she sells have gotten grants from businesses to help them through the pandemic. Now, Soul Folks has started hosting events on weekends, like a recent fashion show.
0: Clap it up one
3: time. So right now you guys are in front of Soul Folks. It is a- Down the street from the show, next to the drum circle, is a street vendor selling cannabis named W.L. Jackson Jr., or as he calls himself, Lalo.
2: And everything is grown organically, vegan, non-GMO. Um, no animal products. We use ladybugs.
3: He's the owner and grower of a cannabis business called Grandma's Remedy.
2: I only enter the greenhouse if I'm happy, you know, so no bad vibes or nothing like that.
3: He claims to be the only vendor in Mert selling homegrown cannabis.
2: When people hear that I grew it, they look at me different. You know, oh, you sell cannabis. Yeah, but I grew this way different.
3: Jackson lives near Watts, several miles south. Last year, another vendor invited him to sell in Merte and he was intimidated at first. But Jackson says the pandemic slowed people down and got them to stop and notice his business, and that gave him a foothold in the community. As COVID-19 restrictions are eased, Jackson plans to stick around.
1: A lot of new
2: buildings are being built. You know, a lot of new people coming out from every different background, all different type of ethnic groups. And the point is Lamert is growing. Lamert is getting bigger, it's getting better. And it's prospering as a community.
3: Later this year, the Crenshaw LAX Metro line is supposed to be finished, including a Leimert Park stop. And Jackson wants new people to visit and spend their money here, like they do in the other ethnic hubs of LA. I'm Caroline Champlin.
2: all right now to manhattan beach state and los angeles county officials are taking another step to give two parcels of land in the area back to the black family it was taken from nearly a hundred years ago supervisor janice Hahn is leading an effort to right what she calls a historical wrong
5: as one of the descendants said they used the law to commit a
2: crime. The crime Supervisor Hahn is talking about is when Manhattan Beach used eminent domain laws to seize the Bruce's land. That's where the family had a thriving beach resort. Now, as Hahn explains, it was the final shove after years of harassment by the KKK failed to push the black community living there.
5: They slashed people's tires. The KKK even attempted to set the Bruce Lodge on fire and succeeded in burning down a local black family's home near this property.
2: Now this Monday, State Senator Stephen Bradford is introducing a piece of legislation that would make it possible to give back the land. Bradford has also been appointed to the newly formed State Reparations Task Force, and he says that his bill, SB 796, and legislation like... And AB
5: 3121 will explore the possibilities of reparations and set a powerful precedent for Compensation that is owed to African Americans in this country.
2: Chief Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd is a descendant and representative of the Bruce family and says when the land and business was taken away, the family was robbed of the chance to build generational wealth and is now demanding justice.
5: Restitution for the loss of enterprise and punitive damages for the collusion of the institutional racism in this city.
2: That railroaded our family out of here. Back in the 1920s, Manhattan Beach agreed to pay Willa and Charles Bruce about $14,000 for their property, a fraction of its worth by today's standards. And to make matters worse, Shepard says the city took years to make that payment, forcing the family to leave without any income. In addition, they were barred from purchasing new land. Now, the excuse Manhattan Beach gave for removing the Bruce family's business and the surrounding black community was the need for a public park, but it took decades for that park to be built. Today, in addition to a small park, the LA County Fire Department has its lifeguard training headquarters on the land. To change ownership of these two parcels, it'll take the two-third majority passing of two bills and support from the Board of Supervisors to approve it. Now, if that happens, the Bruce family is considering leasing the land back to the county.
0: I
1: wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break
2: all the chains holding Wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, say them clear for the whole round world to hear. You know, back when I was the host of Dodger Talk, I traveled with the team. I I leave for. for Florida on Valentine's Day every day. And everyone would always tell me, you must love opening day. It's the first day of the season. No, it was already a month and a half into the season, and it was going to be the start of six more months of me working. Now, yeah, I did like my job. I mean, I was traveling to ballparks. I was watching the Dodgers play, so it wasn't all bad. But, uh, yeah, I wish I could have illustrated that better (laughs) to everyone back then. Couldn't explain it like I can now. All right, coming up, Libby Denkman is at Dodger Stadium. We're going to check in with her and hear about some of the fans that she's talked to. That's coming up when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hi,
0: it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
7: Let's go!
2: For a ball game today, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba. the fans are out to get a ticket or two from Walla Walla, Washington to Kalamazoo. It is a big day. I mean, Martinez, this is a take two. It's opening day at Dodger Stadium. The Dodgers have their home opener playing the Washington Nationals. It is scoreless in the sixth. First time fans are back in the stadium in over a year. And KPCC's Libby Denkman, who grew up a stone's throw away from Walla Walla, Washington, has been hanging out there all day. Hello, Libby.
7: Hey, A. I did not expect a Walla Walla shout-out. Uh, thanks for that.
2: Yeah, so how's the how's the vibe at Dodger Stadium?
7: It's great. It is a, a long time coming the uh, fans have not been allowed in this stadium since October 2019.
2: Unless they're getting a shot, right? Unless they're getting a vaccine or something, or getting tested, right? right. Yeah.
7: And that's in the parking Yeah, box. yeah. So that hasn't been as fun, although it's uh, arguably much more important. Um, like you said, the game's uh, you know scoreless so far. It's been a bit of a pitcher's duel, and uh, so far, Walker Bueller holding it down on the mound for the Dodgers.
2: Now, Okay, for the fans that haven't been at Dodger Stadium for that long, do you think today, at least just for one day, it matters who wins or loses this game?
7: No, it really doesn't matter at all. <laughs> eh? The biggest highlight so far has been the ceremony before the game, That was when the players and the coaching staff, Dave Roberts and crew, got their World Series championship rings. There was just so much emotion in the ballpark. You know, the players got video congratulations from some of their favorite MLB stars when they were kids. So, for example, Alex Rodriguez sent a video congratulating Dustin May, Ichiro Suzuki for Edwin Rios. Ken Griffey Jr. for Joe Kelly. He even made the Joe Kelly pouty face, which was great. Um, and when it comes to the fans, a I caught up with a bunch of them before the game. And you're going to hear some of them right now. And the clip starts with Sonia Ozeda, who was in line on Vince Scully Avenue before the gates even opened this morning to let fans in.
0: It's an amazing feeling. Here we go. Then the gates open. I got you. It's kind of like the parade we didn't have. Me,
2: me, me. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to Dodger Stadium. It is opening day, folks. Opening day. I have to be here. Even if it's 20%, 50%, no percent, I'm going to be
0: here and I'm here.
3: With fees and everything, it was about $250 a, a ticket. So you're a big fan. I am a big fan.
0: It's something to look forward to after this horrible year that we've been through. Okay. Very
5: excited. Yeah, yeah, I went back to school on Monday and everything is opening up. Because Dodgers
7: are opening up, my school opened up. That must feel pretty
1: good, huh? Yeah. I'm trying to get healthy, but I'm going to have a Dodger dog. Maybe two. Go Dodgers! Woo! Go Go Dodgers! Dodgers!
7: (laughs) And A, there you heard from Sonia Oseida, Jared Appling, Jose Galvez, Yolanda Sepulveda, Kai, and Asher, who are in fourth grade. They're 10 years old. And, uh, and of course, Jose, again, saying he was going to have a couple of Dodger dogs.
2: I'm still impressed that Ichiro Suzuki actually says something out loud where people heard it.
7: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I know. He he was part of the video montage. It was just really emotional. You know, it it kind of Made the players seem like kids again because we were seeing some of their heroes uh, up on the big screen.
2: All right. So here's the thing, Libby, because I got to ask this. I I am a big worrywart. I worry about everything all the time. You know, I I love going to movies. I'm still not planning on going to a movie for a long time. And when I do, it's going to have a a kind of a uniform. It's going to be a cap pulled down low to my eyes two masks on, a hoodie with the hood over it. I mean, I'm going to just be like a hermit when I go to the theater because I'm still worried, even though I got two shots, I'm, I'm all good there. Um, how did it feel being, you know, in the, in the ballpark, in the in the area with all those people around?
7: Well, now I know that when I go to the movie theater and I'll look out for the creepiest person in the theater, <laughs> and that'll be A. Martinez. <laughs> Um, the ballpark is very scantily filled. I mean, this okay. less than a third of the seats are filled. If you look, uh, you know, out at the crowd, it is it is not a packed stadium. People are uh, there's about fifteen thousand tickets that were sold. People are sitting in their pods so with their friends and their family. Now, unlike other uh, ball team uh, ballparks, they did not require vaccination proof yeah. to uh, get into the stadium. And so that is a difference. Um, but, you know, masks everywhere. Everyone I saw was, uh, you know, being as safe as possible, being very separated. And, you know, it's even a cashless stadium now. Uh, yeah, yeah. you, you can't go and order at the concession stand. You order on an app and you do a pickup. So, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of things in place. And I think when you see the crowd there, you'll see it is still... Very much spaced out in an outdoor crowd.
2: Libby, how's the ballpark look? I mean, people I I don't think people realize that Dodger Stadium is the third oldest ballpark in the majors behind Wrigley Field in Chicago and Fenway Park in Boston.
7: Yeah, but it just got a $100 million facelift, eh? And there's a new center field entrance. Uh, You can go out now uh, to this beautiful pavilion with a bunch of statues and kind of an outdoor museum uh, that goes through the history of the Dodgers. There's a, a Shake Shack there that should be opening uh, anytime now. It's, it's closed for now because, you know, the, the attendance again at the game is just really low. Um, but the ballpark looks gorgeous. It, this is the first time the fans are getting to see this new look for the stadium in person after this $100 million upgrade. Um, there's a brand new beer garden, that you can go to and have a brew while you're watching the Dodgers pitchers warming up in the bullpen. I mean, it's it's really nice. They've done a beautiful job upgrading the stadium, but preserving the history of this park.
2: That's KPCC's Libby Denkman reporting from Dodger Stadium. Libby, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. And I mentioned it a couple of times. I'm two weeks out for my second shot, so technically I'm good to go. But I gotta admit, I'm nervous. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I guess I can go anywhere around. I am going to my grandma's house. I haven't seen her in a year, and I'm nervous about that too because I don't know how to act. She's gonna be 99 in a couple of weeks, so. Uh, Think of me (laughs) in the next hour or so because I'm going to be doing something I haven't done in a long time and I'm nervous about it. More Take Two uh, on Monday at 2. Talk to you then.
0: The Las Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.